Yes, so much. Have a seat, have a seat. Turn around, say hi to someone, say hey, who are you? Nice, I just prayed for you. You're cool. Nice. Welcome to the Vine if you're new here. Uh, my name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, welcome if you're online with us right now. We're so grateful that you join us. Uh, some of you join us each and every week from around the world online. We're so glad you're here. Uh, welcome to everybody in the overflow outside. We know we've got uh, a packed overflow outside as well. It's great to have you with us. Um, if you're new to the Vine, uh, you may not know who I am. You may not know where I'm from. I have a weird accent, and when I talk, people, if they don't know me, they're like, they don't listen to a word of what I say for 20 minutes. They just try to work out, is he American? Is he Australian? Like, where is he from? Um, actually, that question, where am I from, is one that has caused me a lot of stress and anxiety over my life. It's actually the question that I have struggled to answer the, probably the most in my life. I wonder whether anyone else here might resonate with that idea. Um, I, was, I was actually born in the UK. Uh, born in the UK, lived there for seven years, but then I, I left the UK and I lived in the US. Uh, and I lived in America for four years, some of the most formative years as a kid from seven to about the age of 11. And at the age of 11, I came to Hong Kong and uh, moved here with my family and have been here for 36 years. And so the interesting thing for me is that I've been in Hong Kong for 36 years, so in a way, Hong Kong is home, but the reality is I actually don't speak Cantonese. I know, shocking and shameful. I don't speak Cantonese after 36 years. The reality also is, if I'm honest with you, is that I'm not actually deeply immersed in super local Cantonese culture. And part of that is because I was raised in an international schooling system here, and and I've actually, for whatever reason, have for the majority of my life lived in districts of Hong Kong that are generally favored by expatriates or international people. So some of my local friends, when I tell them oh, I'm a Hong Konger, they just smile at me and pat me on the back and kind of go, no, you're not, no, you're not, no, you're not. Whereas some of my other local friends who know my heart and, and have seen my life over the last 36 years are like, you are absolutely a Hong Konger. And so the question I often grapple with is, who actually am I? Am I British? Well, my passport tells me so. Am I a Hong Konger? My, my heart tells me so. The reality is I, I, I probably exist somewhere between the two of those realities. I, I'm a classic third culture kid. I would imagine there's a bunch of others in the room online right now who would resonate with that. I was born in one culture. I grew up in another culture. And over that, I've, I've kind of gotten lost between those two cultures. And I've, and I've had to try to work out, well, who exactly am I? And, and to take the best of one culture and the best of another culture and try to bring those things together. But if I'm honest with you, I think the way that a lot of third culture kids feel is you just feel kind of adrift on an ocean of cultural and national identity that you never really feel like you're settling into. You never really feel like you've got an anchor point that you can kind of put down in any place where you can find some, some roots and you long to find a home. You, you long to have a group of people where you generally feel like you fully fit into and are, interestingly and importantly, fully embraced by those people. It's funny, my wife Christine, she'll often say to me, Andrew, you're a chameleon when it comes to culture. You, you have an amazing ability to adapt to the color of the majority culture that you're finding yourself operating in in that moment. If I'm around a bunch of Americans, I start sounding more American. If I'm with Australians, I become... You can't even understand what I'm saying if I'm with Australians, because it's Australians. Had to do it, had to do it. 
but I, I have this amazing ability to sort of adapt to whatever majority culture I'm around because I'm desperately trying to find people that will accept me. And in fact, one of, the, one of the biggest questions I think of my adult life has always been, who exactly are my people and will I ever fit in? And as we continue our Exodus journey and we get to the midway point of the second chapter, that's exactly what is going on for Moses. Moses is in a growing tension of an identity crisis. He's wondering, who really are my people and where do I fit in? We saw last week that, that Moses born to a Levite family, so Hebrew in his blood and origin in that sense. But at a young age, he's put in a basket and sent off down the Nile River. And, and Pharaoh's daughter from the Egyptian culture finds him and, and adopts him into her family. Now God, because he's incredible and miraculous and does all these amazing things, manages to get Moses back to his biological mother who gets the joy of nursing him. Scholars think that that took place over probably three to four years. So for three or four years, Moses was back in his Hebrew family, biological family. And, and I'm sure during that time, his mother and father and everybody else around immersed him in the Hebrew culture, helped him to understand what it meant to be a believer in a monotheistic God, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, to help him to journey in the understanding of what it meant to be a person, a part of the people of God. But then at the age of three or four, his mother takes him back and hands him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who from that point forward raises him as her own son. And just as if Moses had been taken and drawn out of the waters of the Nile, he's now taken and drawn out of his Hebrew culture and he's placed into a different culture. And he grows up now immersed around that culture as a prince within the Egyptian royal courts. Now, interestingly, fascinatingly, Moses, who's writing the book of Exodus, doesn't tell us anything about that time. Almost as if maybe he's embarrassed to talk about it. But he doesn't mention anything about it. In fact, we have to look outside of the book of Exodus to find any commentary about what it was like for Moses at that time. There are some commentary in, in the rest of the scriptures and also external to scripture and history. Uh, let me just give you some examples. Acts chapter 7 is the story of Stephen standing before the Sanhedrin, his power, authority of his people in the day, the Jewish people. And, and he's fighting for his life, and he's fighting for his life by telling them the story of his people. And he goes right back to Abraham, and he works through, and of course, he speaks about Moses. Let me read you from Acts 7, verse 21. He says, when he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. We get a little glimpse right there. Moses, understandably, was raised in the educational system of Egypt, but not just the educational system. He's remembering he's in the royal court. And, and, and you can do some research here and find out what, what it was like to be educated in the royal court of that time. Moses would have received the best education in the world at that time. He would have been taught maths. He would have been taught political discourse and political history. He would have been taught military strategies. He would have been taught languages, architecture, a whole bunch of different things, philosophy. He would have been taught, importantly, about the Egyptian religious system and how all of the spiritual deities of Egypt worked. All of this would have been his education. And Stephen tells us here he was powerful in speech indeed. So, so he was good at what he had learned. He'd learned all this stuff and it had become a part of who he was. Interestingly, the uh, first century historian Josephus also writes about Moses in this time. 
And he tells us two things. One, that Moses was being groomed by Pharaoh to take over as Pharaoh in Egypt. Now, it's likely that that the Pharaoh of the time of the Exodus did not have his own son. And although Moses was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, it looks like through history that actually Moses and Pharaoh almost became a father-son kind of relationship. And this father figure over Moses was grooming him to take over the running of Egypt. The second thing that Josephus tells us is that Moses actually had led a military conquest, a victorious military conquest in Ethiopia in that time. So I want you to understand something really important here. Moses being adopted into Pharaoh's family doesn't mean that Moses was like the embarrassing third uncle that you kind of wish never came to the Christmas party and you're kind of embarrassed about him. Moses wasn't some Hebrew that was embarrassing to the family and they kind of shoved him off in the side during all the important events. Moses was centered into the powerful, oppressive work of the Egyptian empire. He was being groomed to be Pharaoh, and not only that, but he had already led military conquests on behalf of Egypt's power and might. And he had done all of this in absolute opulent prosperity, living in one of the wealthiest families of that time. And Moses, now 40 years old, is struggling with exactly who he is. He's basically going to have a midlife crisis in the passage we look at today. And he's like, hang on, who am I? Am I a Hebrew? Well, by blood, yes. Am I Egyptian? Well, by my literal and metaphorical clothes, my identity, yes, I am. So does that mean then that I'm, I'm one of the oppressed? Or am I actually the oppressor? Moses is wondering... Am I really a liberator of my people? Or actually, am I a part of the very problem? And this internal conflict that's happening for Moses quickly enables Moses to realize, and for us as we look at this passage to realize, that in the Exodus story, there isn't this clear-cut idea of the good and the bad. But as so often in all of our lives... There's a lot of nuance and gray in the coming together of a lot of different things. And just like me, who had been born in one culture and raised in the other and was desperately trying to work out who I am, Moses, born in one culture, raised in another, and now at 40 years old going, what do I do next? And it's all of that tension that we now turn our attention to as I take you back to the land of Egypt. Let's have a look. So the kind of TV shows or movies that I've always been drawn to are the ones where there are no cliché good guys versus bad guys, but where every character has the propensity for moments of both great goodness and great evil. And, And I think one of the reasons why I'm drawn to this kind of storytelling is because it reveals to us something about our shared common humanity, that each one of us has the potentiality to be both oppressed and the oppressor, to be winners as well as losers. Every single one of us has had moments that we have been deeply proud of, but we've also had moments that we've regretted and have deeply buried. 
you know, if we deny this, we actually enter into one of the slaveries that I think so many of us become blind to, and that's the slavery of denial. As the Exodus narrative continues, we quickly discover that there are no straight-cut good guys and bad guys. At the halfway mark of the second chapter, we discover Moses as a grown man, and not just any man, but a prince of Egypt, having been raised in Pharaoh's very household. I mean, consider the privilege and prestige that had been afforded Moses. Despite his Hebrew origin, he was raised by one of the wealthiest Egyptians in the land and was surrounded day and night by its customs and culture. He had been cared for, raised, and educated by Pharaoh and his family, all while his own people suffered at the hand of their oppression. At this point in the story, Moses is not the Jewish people's hero, but actually a part of the problem. Perhaps even worse, for Moses was a Jew adopted into the family of the oppressors, and he had not done anything at all to stop that oppression. But suddenly, everything changes. One day, you see, Moses is out and he's just observing the hard labor that his people are under. And he sees an Egyptian beating up a Hebrew. Now, that was probably an everyday occurrence in that time. But for whatever reason, on this particular day, Moses decides to act. He attacks the Egyptian and it ends up actually killing him. And in his panic, he decides to bury the Egyptian in the sand hoping that in burying that Egyptian, he'd be able to distance himself from the violence that he's created, hoping to cover up his crime, if you will. Now, before we judge uh, Moses a little bit too harshly, I think we have to realize that all of us have the tendency to do this. I mean, we may not be out there murdering people, but we hurt people, we say things, we, we actually pull people down. And when we do so, we so often try to bury that hurt, try to bury that shame, try to distance ourselves from it. And in so doing, actually, try to provide for us a cover for the thing that we've done. But maybe perhaps just like Moses, rather than burying these things, we need to actually expose them in order for them to be redeemed. In many ways, Moses had been burying things for years. He had buried his Hebrew ancestry in the sand of Egyptian culture and customs, hiding his true identity in the power of Pharaoh's royalty and prestige, remaining blind to the oppression around him. This is what we do when we're trapped in the slavery of denial. We run from the realities of our own contribution to the oppression of others by burying ourselves in self-righteousness that placates our guilt and shame and keeps us aloof, uncaring, unfeeling, and disconnected. Moses murders an Egyptian and buries him in the hope that he can remain disconnected from his crime and get away from his violence. But he's about to discover something we always seem to forget when trapped in the slavery of denial. Our mistakes rarely stay buried forever. Word gets back to Pharaoh about what Moses has done. And not surprisingly, Pharaoh is furious. 
I mean, the very one that he had raised almost like his own son, the one who had been adopted by his daughter, the one who he had high hopes for in his own court, has actually killed an Egyptian subject. And how does Pharaoh respond? Well, he decides he needs to kill Moses, that there needs to be blood for blood. Well, Moses hears about the scheme of Pharaoh against him, and so he flees to the far side of Midian and comes to a well that's not so dissimilar to this one right here. Now, these wells were a, a lifeline in the harsh desert conditions like these around me right now. And, and no doubt Moses would have camped near this kind of well for a couple of days, perhaps reflecting back on the week that had just been. How one random act of violence had turned his whole life upside down and how now his own family was trying to kill him. And this is an aspect of the Exodus story that I think it's easy for us all to miss. When we think of the Exodus story, we think of Pharaoh and Moses like, like bitter enemies against each other, as if they're like a protagonist and an antagonist, a good guy and a bad guy. But actually the story is far more nuanced than that. Actually the start of the Exodus narrative is a story about a betrayal within a family about a, a son who feels betrayed by his adopted father, how a father feels betrayed by his adopted son. And all of that combines together to create such fury and animosity and oppression that the whole of the Exodus journey begins from that point. And I think all of this teaches us something that's quite critical about our own journeys from slavery to freedom. And it's this, that so often the most painful moments of oppression occur, not by those who are strangers to us, but by those that we love the most. The wound causes Moses to bury once again. He's lost his Egyptian family and he's run from his own people who are in need. He has a deep sense of shame attached to both. And like we all so often do when faced with our failures and our brokenness, he flees into lies and self-denial, recreating a new identity with a new group of people and in so doing, hoping he can permanently bury his past. But that's not the way it works with God. God is in the business of revealing that which is hidden in darkness. And for Moses, a new light is about to shine. God is in the business of revealing the things that are hidden in darkness. What we're about to look at as we open up this story in a bit more detail together is, I think, the most significant thing that you need to open your heart to if you duly want to go in an Exodus journey yourself. I can't stress how important what happens next for Moses is for us as we think about our own liberation from the things that we also want to hide. Let me read this to you from uh, chapter 2, verse 11. Everybody okay still? How beautiful, by the way. That was Jordan, not Egypt, by the way. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Every, every week, everybody's coming up to me, and they're like, I want to go to Egypt now. And I'm like, yeah. It's great. But that was Jordan, just want to say. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were, watched, uh, where, where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that, he, hid, uh, he killed him and then took the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. 
The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. Well, let's just stop there. Let me, let me read 12 again. Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and had hid him in the sand. This is a turning point in Moses' life, a complete and utter radical turning point. He's uh, about the age 40 here. And like I said before, Moses doesn't give us any details about the life prior to this point. Almost as if he wants to just kind of rush over that and get to this point. He's 40 years old, dressed in the robes of his Egyptian culture and identity. And yet today he goes out and probably does what he had done on a very regular basis. Take a look at what was happening amongst his own flesh and blood, amongst the Hebrew people. And he sees a scene that would have been part of the everyday life of that time, an Egyptian slave master being tough on on a Hebrew slave. And again, Moses would have seen that many, many times. But this day, something different takes place. Question is, why? Well, Moses helps us to understand that by a word he uses here. It says in the English, he watched them at their labor. This, this word watch that, he, that Moses writes here is the word ra'ah. And ra'ah is a very important Hebrew word that actually is now repeated from this point forward about five times in the next three chapters. The word ra'ah means this. It means to see with emotion, to see something and be moved by it. Not just to observe something, but now to be moved by it. This is the difference you see between Moses having seen the oppression of his people for 40 years and never done anything about it, to this moment now wanting, stirred to, something in his spirit that moves him to want to act. This is the exact same word that we saw last week that was applied to Pharaoh's daughter when she sees Moses in the waters and she is moved with compassion to save him. She ra'as, she sees him with emotion, draws him up and brings him into his, her, her family. The same word is being used here. And just like we said last week, the word holds with it the idea that God's spirit is involved in the emotive, the compassion, the desire to do something, the heart change. God's spirit is at work in it. So so what we're seeing here in the start of our our story today is that Moses' heart is being changed. There's, There's a significant shift that's happening for him as he now sees with emotion and compassion, and he's beginning to understand, hang on, these are my people. Hang on, there's, there's something going on here. These are not just the, the oppressed around us. These are actually my people, and, and my heart is being stirred to kind of do something. But, but this is a, a difficult journey for him because he's still caught between these two identities. He's still struggling with, am I this or am I that? The, the, the writer in the book of Hebrews, very interestingly, actually pulls out this exact moment and he says something that's, I think, quite helpful for us to see. This is Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 24. It says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose instead to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. Now, I think the writer of Hebrews here is writing about what took place for Moses after this moment. Most scholars would argue, is it before this moment? Is it after this moment? I think it's after. I think God is the starting point of stirring something in Moses' heart as he sees his people on this particular day, and he will go on to align himself more and more with his Israelite identity and move away from his Egyptian one. But in this moment, he sees something, it stirs his heart, and he wants to respond. But this tension is real, and this tension is also real for us. 
Moses is struggling with his identity and realizing that the identity that he's embraced is not now the identity that God is beginning to speak to him about. Are you following that? And that's going to be every person in here's journey if you truly want to go on Exodus. You're going to have to realize that the identity that you have embraced is not necessarily the one that God wants you to walk in. Each one of us wear the clothes of identities that we have embraced throughout our lives that do not represent the full truth of who we are. Come on, church. That's the first thing you need to grapple with here. That you have identities that are being formed in you, shaped in you by preferences and choices, that are being formed and shaped in you by family dynamics, that are being formed and shaped in you by your marriages and by the people around you and your workplaces, that have been formed and shaped in you by your thinking and your attitude, formed and shaped in you by your sin and your brokenness. And those identities are often the things that we wear to try to find a place in this world. And you will never, never journey in Exodus until you have the courage to step away from some of those identities. The starting point of all of our journeys in Exodus is to remove the clothes that we are wearing that cover up the person that we truly want to be in Christ Jesus. We have to have the courage to remove those identities, to to recognize that those identities are ours, to be honest about them and sober about them, and say that this identity is coming and being placed upon me and I'm, and I'm in this middle ground. I'm a third culture person right now and I know what Christ wants. Christ is stirring something in my heart. There's a, a call to liberation. There's a call to freedom from my sin and my brokenness and yet I recognize that I'm still dressed in the clothes of the oppressing identity. Something has to change. Some of us in this room, here's the honest reality. We have gotten comfortable in the clothes of Egypt. I'm going to say that again because I just felt strongly the spirit of God for you. The honest truth is I'm like this as well. We have become comfortable in the clothes of Egypt. And if we're going to really be honest and and truthful and sober about this series that we're in, it's only going to happen if we're willing to recognize that we've become comfortable in identities that have come to shape and form us and make us think that we're someone, when the reality is we're only someone in Christ Jesus. And and that invitation is a bold one from God, and it's not an easy one to wrestle with, and, and Moses is wrestling with it, and here's how he tries to respond with it. He sees an Egyptian slave master beating on one of his own people. And in kind of going, well, I think I am Hebrew. I am Hebrew. And I want my Hebrew people to identify with me. And I want them to accept me. He steps in and does what only he knows because of how he's been raised to kind of sort of sort out a problem that's happening between two people. He goes in and he kills the Egyptian. I want you to see this, church, because it's super important. Moses being stirred by God in his heart to stand on behalf of the oppression of his people. His first act to be a liberator of his people is violence and murder. In other words, Moses, even though his heart is beginning to be stirred, his clothes are still very Egyptian. And so he has a heart to move. He has the right idea, the wrong method. And the Egyptian 
clothes that he wears, metaphorically, metaphorically and as well as literally, are shaping him still. And he thinks, oh, well, this is the way I liberate my people. I need to go in with that mighty uh, kind of military strategy. Look what I did in Ethiopia. I can do that now on behalf of my people. He's basically acting like Pharaoh in order to be a liberator of his people. Are you following this? And when we act in the brokenness that we embrace, in the wrong identities that we have, to try to do God's will, there's always going to be a problem with that. You need to understand that you cannot bring about God's exodus through your own brokenness. Hello? You guys okay? You cannot bring about God's exodus through your own brokenness. Here's the reality. It is not your exodus. So many of us, as we start this series, we're wanting exodus from the things that are holding us, from the things that are are enslaving us, and we have an idea of what that exodus will look like. We have to let go of our agenda of exodus to actually receive God's exodus that he has for us. Your brokenness is never going to be the vehicle by which you're going to be able to act in Exodus. And here's Moses' brokenness. As a one of Pharaoh who's, who's thinking that it's all about power, it's all about prestige, it's all about might. That psalm that says, some trust in horses, some trust in harriers, but I trust in the name of the Lord. Moses has the mentality, we trust in horses. We trust in chariots. It's our wisdom. It's our strength. And, and, and I think Moses took it even further. I think Moses was thinking, this is maybe why God has raised me in Pharaoh's household. So that I would be well-educated. So I would be strong. So I would know all the strategies. So I can now go and stand in the gap. And just in the way that we killed all of those Ethiopians, I can now kill this Egyptian in the hopes of setting my people free. And you get the sense that God is standing back from all that and going, hmm. Moses buries his sin. He kills somebody, had no authority to do so. And he knew it was wrong, that's why he buries the Egyptian. And he buries him in sand because he wants to get away with the sin. You can almost see the shame that's inside of him. It says in the scripture that he looked left and he looked right. The thing he failed to do was to look up. And he takes this Egyptian and he buries him in the sand, hoping he's going to get away with it, thinking he's gotten away with it. In fact, so much so that he goes back the next day to see how his people is doing, thinking that he's completely got away with everything. And we have to be really honest with ourselves and realize we do this too. Just like I said in the film, we have a habit of burying our sin. We have a habit of covering up the things that we do that we know is not what God wants for us, what we know is not right, and we we cover these things up, and we kind of pretend like they, they haven't happened. You want to know what I think is the true global pandemic in the church today? It's secret sin. In fact, when I was preparing this series four years ago, I felt the Holy Spirit say to me very strongly, Andrew, there's a lot of secret sin in the vine. There's a lot of sin that we're, that we're doing knowingly and we're covering up with the sand to avoid and we think we're getting away with it. Yeah, I was on that website, but I cleared the history. My wife won't see it. Yeah, I, I did that dodgy business deal, but I trust the person. He's not going to tell anyone. It's going to be fine. When the church walks in the secrecy of sin, the enemy has won because the enemy's nature is to be secretive. 
the Lord's nature is to be open and vulnerable and transparent and real. And the more that we operate in the secretness of our sin, the more the enemy has won and the power of the church is reduced. And God's standing over us and he's going, you can bury all you want, but I know. I see it. And I love you. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm not here to make you feel terrible. I'm here to set you free. But in order for you to be set free, you've got to stop burying stuff. You've got to stop, stop doing that. You've got to start, start working out that, that actually your honesty, your transparency, your willingness to not be like Adam and Eve who were once naked and unashamed, who through their sin became naked and ashamed, covered themselves up. And God shows up and says, who told you you were naked? In other words, I'm welcoming you back into a relationship with me where there doesn't need to be secrecy, there doesn't need to be hiddenness, there doesn't need to be brokenness. I want to set you free. And Moses, like us, has killed, has felt shame, has buried. And any time you bury sin, any time you bury shame, any time you bury guilt... It is just festering and festering and festering, and it has the power to come up and ruin you unless the Spirit of God comes and enables you through his beautiful kindness and conviction that leads to repentance, where you can say, Lord, I am ashamed of this, but in your eyes, you love me. Here it is. Set me free. That's the heart of Exodus. Are you with me still so far? Now, now I want you to see what happens next. Verse 13 onwards. I'm enjoying this. You guys okay? Verse 13 says this. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. So the next day, thinking he's gotten away with everything, goes back out to be the savior of his people. Right? He asked one that was wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me just as you killed the Egyptian? Ouch. It's like a mic drop moment. In other words, we know what you did. Everybody knows what you did. We're all talking about it. We all know. You can't hide this thing. You killed an Egyptian. And that's really bad news for all of us. So are you going to kill us now like you killed the Egyptian? Are you going to try to cover up all of your mistakes all the time? Then Moses was afraid, understandably, and thought, what I did must have become known. (laughs) I love it. It's really interesting what they say here. They say to Moses, who made you ruler and judge over us? In other words, we didn't ask for a deliverer. We didn't ask for you to be our deliverer. Who who made you ruler and judge over us? Because you're still dressed in your Egyptian identity. You're still dressed in your Egyptian clothes. You're still thinking like a pharaoh. And we, we see you, Moses, as one of the oppressors, not one of the oppressed. Oh, you might have our blood, but that's all you have. Who made you? Who decided that you could be our ruler and judge? What they were basically saying to him is this. Don't you realize that we don't want you? We don't want your pharaoh power in our lives. In fact, Moses, you're a part of the problem. You killing the Egyptian yesterday has made our lives worse. Are you seeing this? Now, there's also something else going on here. God is also speaking to Moses. Because when these two Hebrews say to him, who made you ruler and judge over us? God is speaking to Moses and God is saying, who made you ruler and judge over my people? Have I done that yet? No, 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 I haven't done that yet. 
oh, I'm stirring your heart by my spirit. I'm rehiring you. You're beginning to see the injustice of my people. I'm beginning to work. But there's so much, Moses, that has to happen in your life. So much that needs to change in your life before I am going to use you to be my deliverer. Because if I use you now, your methods and your thinking is going to be the world's wisdom, the world's strength, your mighty army strength. I have so much I need to unravel. So much I need to get out of you. So much I need to change in you. I have not released you. You're, in fact, going to live for 40 years in Midian in this horrible desert before I even show up as a burning bush and begin to officially call you to be a liberator. You are not that person right now, and you need to realize there's work that needs to be done. Do you see it? And God is being pretty strong with Moses here. I haven't told you yet. And yet you're jumping the gun. You're getting straight into this stuff. And that's not the way it works here. And Moses realizes that there is so much he needs to deal with. You see, for for Moses, he is going to quickly realize that in order for him to be his people's deliverer, he's first of all going to need deliverance himself. Come on, church. In order for him to eventually become his people's deliverer, he's first of all going to have to experience deliverance himself. And I want to be bold and stand before you all today and say this. If you are enjoying this series, if you're feeling like the Lord is calling you into Exodus, here's the bold, sobering reality. You will need some deliverance. You are going to need, like Moses, to get rid of some of your falsy identities. You're going to need to be willing to allow God to come and stir some things in you. The journey of Exodus is not all cupcakes and my little ponies. The journey of Exodus is gritty and real. And if it's going to have any lasting change, it starts with the reality that we are dressed in the wrong clothes some of the time. And God, would you come and... hmm. Would you come and help me? Notice what happens next, because this is tough. Verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian. Fascinating. Remember what I said in the film, and this is so true. This is not just a good guy and a bad guy who are suddenly fighting against each other now. This is an adopted father who is now heartbroken because of what his adopted son's done. This is an adopted son who's wrestling with the oppression of his adopted father, who's trying to work that through in his head. This is Pharaoh who probably always harbored insecurities that maybe one day Moses might turn against him, that maybe one day because of his Hebrew blood, maybe one day he might. And so perhaps Moses, oh sorry, perhaps Pharaoh, in in hoping to get all of that out of Moses, puts him in the school, gets him all pharaohed up, tells him he's going to groom him to be the next leader, sends him on a conquest to Ethiopia, because all of that is designed by Pharaoh to get the Hebrew out of Moses. And now we're at a point where Pharaoh realizes that all that hard work has achieved nothing. Because when it came to it, Moses has now chosen his people. And so Pharaoh's response is blood for blood. You killed one of my subjects? I'm going to kill you. And couldn't you imagine the depth of pain now for Moses? I want you to see this, really important. Because not only has Moses been rejected by his own people, the Hebrews, who have said, we don't want you as judge over us. He's now been rejected by his own family, his own 
people that loved him and raised him for 40 years. They now want to kill him. And Moses is now in a place where he's like, hang on a sec. Literally a minute ago, I was somebody, and now I'm nobody. And God goes, now we can get to work. Come on, church. Now we can get to work. There's a journey that you have to go on from being a somebody in the world's eyes to being a nobody in the world's eyes so that God can then turn you into a somebody in his eyes. So he can now come and begin to form and shape in you the person that he truly is calling you to be. This is Moses' great moment of disruption and disorientation. And if you're anything like me, seasons of disorientation are disorientating. They're not easy. They're hard. They're painful. But you need to understand something very central to the Exodus journey. There is no process of liberation until there is first a process of disorientation. There is no ability for you to be set free until you first wrestle deeply with the reality of your brokenness. There is no liberation that can happen until you first face disorientation, disruption, the recognition of a brokenness, and to say, this is not what I want. And Moses, as painful as it is, is now stripped from all of his identities. And he flees to Midian and he sits down at a well and he begins to form a new identity. And we don't have time to look at the story today, but he meets a woman and, and he does this amazing thing and he, he saves this family and they suddenly bring him into their family and he has kids and he builds a whole new life as a shepherd. His father-in-law is a shepherd. He becomes a shepherd. All of that for 40 years before God even shows up in the burning bush and does anything. And it's like God is saying this, what the world meant for evil, I'm going to use for good. You just got rejected by your people and rejected by me. Oh, oh, sorry, by Pharaoh's family. I'm going to step in now. And what was meant for evil is I'm going to now turn for good. None of this was a surprise to God. And God steps into the circumstances of brokenness. And he meets Moses and says, now we can begin. And here's the question. Are you willing? Are you willing to embrace the disorientation of the broken identities that sit over your life? Are you willing to soberly see them with emotion, to recognize them, and where you have up until now just buried them, be willing to come to the Lord with an open hand and say, God, this is what's going on, and I cannot, will not, don't want to. And Lord, it is breaking me. It is warring in me. I am disorientated. I am disrupted. And God, I am desperately in need. And in order for me to move into your spirit and with what you want, I need to now purge. Help me, Lord, do that. The season of disorientation starts by asking three very important questions. I want to share these questions and then I'm going to pray with you. Here's the first question. What clothes are you wearing today that God needs to strip away from you? All of us are carrying identities that I've talked about earlier that God wants to deal with. What are the ones that you're carrying with you? Number two, what sins have you committed that you have long since buried that God in his love and grace wants to expose so he can heal you? What is the sand that you've been placing over the, the box that you've put stuff in, hidden away from everybody so they can't see it and you're covering it all up? What are the sins that you're getting away with or think you're getting away with right now 
that God actually wants to begin to speak to you about and put his finger on out of his grace and mercy so that he can truly set you free. Here's the third final one. What desert might God need to bring you to in order to remove from you the earthly power and privilege that only gets in the way of God's power being made manifest in your life? That's the place of disorientation. Where does God need to bring you to so that he can shake away the comforts of this world so that you can finally find comfort in him. That is how we start Exodus. And Moses, as painful as it was for him to sit down in that well and wonder, how did my life just get turned upside down? It is now that God can meet him and begin to form in him the leader he would become so that he wouldn't stand before Pharaoh with Pharaoh's authority and power, but instead with a simple shepherd's staff and say plainly before him, Let my people go. As I stand before you today, as your pastor, that's what I feel for you. I stand before you and I say to the enemy who is trying to hold you back, let my people go. I wonder whether you would pray with me. Let's pray. Father.